Welcome to another episode of L&D Behind the Curtain, where we meet L&D leaders from all sectors to shed some light on their experience and their career journeys, and also showcase some often unseen work that goes on in training departments. And this week, I think we've got a guest that many of our listeners will already know, Alex. When we're talking about performance consulting, in essence, it's moving away from thinking about delivering training and thinking about what is the gap in performance that people are experiencing. This week, we're joined by Katie Walton, who's set up a fantastic Facebook group called The Progress Place. It's a community that serves L&D and HR professionals across the UK. For those of you that haven't visited the page, I'd highly recommend you take a look. Uh, not only is it a place where you can share your experiences and indeed learn from others, but also somewhere to check out if you're looking for tools or resources or if you're interested in events and, or even recruiting. Yeah, certainly worth a look. We're both uh, members there, obviously, now. Um, but Katie's day job, as it were, is running a consultancy business called Make Real Progress. And there, she, I guess, she uses her vast experience in travel and the financial services sector to help develop L&D teams within business, but also work with individual coaches. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, she also manages to help us with a brief uh, that we had in during this short call. So I think you'll enjoy this one. This comes up time and time again in different CIPD reports about L&D not necessarily taking their own medicine and not focusing enough on their own skills development. Well, thanks for agreeing to be our next victim, Katie. I thought a... Victim, uh... that's a lovely way of describing it. <laughs> I thought a good place to start might be for you to give us a quick overview of your background and, and career in learning and development. Well, it's quite a long one. So how long have you got? Oh. <laughs> it started back in uh, 1995. So... I left college, I, I studied languages at college, and all I wanted to do was to travel the world. So I decided instead of going to university with all of my friends, I would work abroad. And so I got a role as a holiday rep in the south of France. So it, it was an amazing opportunity because I was getting to speak French and German and Dutch, and it was brilliant. And what I quickly realised was that I had a real passion for working with people. And in that time, I I used to pride myself on giving great customer service, really making sure people had an amazing holiday. And in short, I then got promoted up, managed a team, then got headhunted to the training team. And that's what kickstart my training career. So I was working in Paris for three years, training holiday reps from across the whole of Europe. And then went on to a long career nationwide. I did, yes. Um, so after the three years in Paris, I moved across to the UK. I actually spent six months at Alton Towers, first of all, as their L&D department. Then a quick right. stint over at um, what was Norwich and Peterborough Building Society. So that got me into financial services. And from there, moved over to Nationwide. 17 years in total at Nationwide Building Society. Um, a quick stint at Thomas Cook. And then my last in-house role was at uh, BGL Insurance, who owned Compare the Market. Oh, excellent. And, and now you run Make Real Progress and the I Progress do. Place community on Facebook. Yes. And yeah. that, that helped L&D, HR and coach professionals to, to progress in their careers. So what was the story behind founding that and, and, and why you set it up? Okay, so I've loved running communities for years and years and years. So back, it was probably about seven or eight years ago, I started volunteering for the local CIPD branch and I used to run the events for them. 
And I absolutely loved it. I loved the opportunity to meet a broad range of people. And it started to to grow my network as well, because I was bringing in, I was looking for speakers all of the time, people who had specific experience or knowledge in certain areas of L&D and loved the whole process of bringing them together. And um, again, a very long story short, the CIPD branch wasn't sustainable in the longer term. They didn't have enough volunteers to keep it going. So I set up my own HR community along with a fabulous uh, HR professional called Nikki Morby. And we ran it locally for the Peterborough, Cambridgeshire, Lincolnshire area. And the whole idea was to give a space for HR and L&D professionals to come together and develop. And it was hugely popular. You know, the last one that we ran before lockdown, we had 50 people in the room, all learning and focusing about imposterism. And it made me realise that something like this was sorely, sorely needed. And we took it virtually when lockdown first came. And then I just saw an opportunity to broaden it out. So rather than just focusing on the local area, I saw a great need for people across the whole of the UK to come together and help support each other. And it kind of just grew from there. And with that, and you've just changed the name of it as well, haven't you? So, so, have. so tell us, tell us what it's about. You know, it's a bit more meat behind it, really. So, what, what are you now called? How many members do you have? What what goes on in your community? Okay, so it was the Progress Club, and it was cha- I changed it to the Progress Place, and like you said, uh, uh, Nathan, it was just really, really recently. And the whole idea is that I wanted it to feel like a place where people could come to get community, to get support, to get their questions answered, and a place to come for either free or low-cost development, because I recognise I was hugely lucky uh, working for larger organisations because I had a massive amount invested in my learning and development, and I know how impactful it was and how much it helped me grow. But I also know there's a lot of people who are either standalone or they work for SMEs, they don't have budgets, they don't have teams around them. So I wanted a place for somebody to come if they don't have access to the stuff that I had when I was um, starting out in my L&D career and progressing through my L&D career. So that's why I wanted to call it a place. So club feels a little bit um, like it could be excluding people. So I wanted it to be an inclusive place where whether you're in HR or L&D or a coach, you can come together and share your knowledge, your experience on developing other people. And that's really the ethos and the spirit behind it. And how have you found it in terms of people sharing stuff that is really useful and constructive and, and, and how's it going, I guess? It, do you know what? It tends to have peaks and troughs. And one of the frustrating things is that it's on Facebook. And so you've got some people who don't like to use Facebook um, in a work kind of context. But you've also got the Facebook algorithms to contend with. And what I've noticed is sometimes if I post something that I think is hugely valuable and other people have actually said it's hugely valuable as well. So it might be a long form post which talks about something like um, how to create a shadow board or overcoming imposterism or building up confidence or different methods in um, facilitating people. I sometimes maybe get about 40 people who the, the post gets pushed out to. I put something on there about what biscuits do you like to dunk in your tea? And you get one and a half thousand people that it gets pushed out to. So the hugely frustrating thing is that unless people have their notifications switched on, some of the great content in there goes unread. But what I particularly love is just the way that people can ask a question. I pride myself on building psychological safety 
in communities and groups. So I'm very open and vulnerable about things that haven't worked well for me, uh, things that have gone wrong, because I don't want to be seen as an expert, a guru. I want to be seen as someone who's got a deep specialism and passion for L&D, but I get it wrong all the time. And I want to also share my mistakes so that it helps other people feel comfortable, normal, um, and able to share their own experiences as well. And to be honest, what you said there really is the inspiration behind us doing it. And it was a client of ours that um, that we worked with last summer on a podcast who is very candid about some of the mistakes she'd made during her career. And, and she's at a very senior level. And it dawned on us, I, I talked to Alex after that interview, it dawned on us that successful people, experienced people are willing to share their failures because that's all part of the process and you, you get to understand that more the more experienced you get right um so in terms of other other stuff you're doing through through your community though are you doing still doing some face-to-face is it is it webinar type stuff how are you coming together we're coming together virtually at the moment so it's not to say never but because we're well it's not just UK wide we have got some people we've got some folk in there from New Zealand Australia America Africa all over the place uh, so we we are virtual first and the idea is that it just becomes quicker and easier for people to be able to hop on and have a discussion about something so I bring I bring guest expert speakers in to talk on a whole range of different topics. I say talk, that really sounds like it's one way. The whole idea is it's conversational as well as information give. But I also love bringing people together for collaboration sessions because I think that is where some magic happens. So, for example, um, we've got Learning at Work Week coming up very shortly. So I've got a collaboration session for people to come and bounce ideas around What have they done that's worked? What have they got in the pipeline? What are they thinking of? What could we do that's different? Because it's all about the theme this year is about future focus. So it's really helping people to think a little bit differently about what the art of the possible is. And again, very similar to really our our thinking behind this and even the name behind the curtain is that none of this really gets shared otherwise. Oh, you're so right. You know, L&D by its very nature, it is internal. And from our side of things, it was always a frustration. You could do some great work. And you, other than showing a clip here and there in a showreel, you never really got to shout about it because you don't talk about these internal initiatives and what businesses are up to. And it's very difficult to see from the outside um, what really is, yeah. are actually doing within LMD. You know, we, one of the challenges we had was looking at, uh, at businesses online and trying to work out what they're doing because there's, there's no info. So I think we're kind of aligned that way. I wonder... Um, with having this community and, and and so many people feeding into it, what what are the challenges you see at the moment that people are kind of facing most? I mean, the world seems a bit doom and gloom. Uh, L&D traditionally has, has had a hit during recessions. It's one of those first areas to be cut. What do you think, what, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges at the moment? Though? Do you know what? There's, it's the same things that have come up time and time again. And interestingly, like way back when, I mentioned earlier that I worked at Alton Towers for a while. Um, I will come back to your question, Nathan. Um, but <laughs> when I worked at Alton Towers, the interview process there was all about identifying a training or performance need across the business and then showing how you'd solve the problem. It was quite a rigorous process to go through. And my focus after interviewing some people around the park was on management development. So noticing that people were promoted into first line supervisor, first line manager positions, normally because they were the ones that were returning for a second season to the business. 
And I haven't seen a shift in businesses yet over 20 odd years. So I still see that as the number one thing that people are grappling with is helping to get their managers upskilled, ready to roll, to be able to lead the people in their teams really effectively. And if you look at the latest LinkedIn learning report as well, for example, it will still say that management and leadership development is the number one priority. So a lot of the things that people are grappling with, are how do I do that on a budget or how do I do that with no budget at all? How do I do it really quickly because we can't afford to take people out of the business for very long? And how do we do it effectively? How do we do it effectively so that people actually take the learning and do something with it and actually change their behaviours or change their performance and get better results? Yeah, it's very similar to a chat we had with Reese Davis recently at Tilbury Douglas, where he, he's saying exactly the same thing. It's, it's about working with the management across various departments and actually changing the culture slightly there to yeah, but- not reinvent the wheel. But really start to look at evaluating stuff and doing things, you know, skills, needs analysis. It reminds me of something we talked about in our pre-interview, actually, in terms mm. of the, the shift towards a more kind of performance consulting model. So I wanted to come on to talk about that and, and maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you know, what is performance consulting and, and you know, why do you believe in it and what, why the shift towards it? Okay, so when we're talking about performance consulting, in essence, it's moving away from thinking about delivering training and thinking about what is the gap in performance that people are experiencing. So you might be asking questions like, where where are people now? So if we use managers as an example, what are the kinds of things that they're doing, they're saying and the results that they're getting right now? And then where do you need them to be? So what kinds of things in an ideal world would you see managers doing? Would you hear managers saying? Um, So you then look at the gap and then think about everything that could be causing that gap for people. So if you're doing a traditional training needs or learning needs analysis, you'd be looking at what training or learning would help to bridge that gap. If you're looking at performance consulting, you're starting to think and, and question a little bit deeper to think about all of the different things that could stop the performance. So it could be people's mindset. It could it could be that they don't have the knowledge and skills required to manage effectively, but it could also be the environment that they're in. So, for example, if you're working in an organisation which um, is hugely ambitious, hugely driven, sets really key goals for people to achieve and people are financially rewarded for meeting those task-based goals – and management and leadership isn't valued or recognised or rewarded in any shape or form, you're likely to see that managers are going to prioritise their work tasks over managing people. So it's not as simple. When, you, when you're performance consulting, you're kind of looking at the bigger picture. You're looking at the whole system, the whole culture that they're operating in and trying to understand all of the, the different levers, all of the different things that are stopping them from performing in the way that you want them to perform. And do you find, you know, taking that approach that, um, or, or a more consultative approach that there's there's a there's pushback from senior leaders, or, or because sometimes there is, it is a very kind of order taking mentality. Oh, you know, we yeah. need this training program. Yeah, can you deliver it rather than you know? Oh, that I've consultative been there, approach. Alex. I've certainly yeah. been there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that is quite an interesting one. And that was my experience at Nationwide, which was a brilliant experience, actually. So the first stage was to recognise that as a, a training department, we were operating more as order takers. So, again, for the benefit of people who aren't familiar with that terminology, it's basically when 
a senior stakeholder typically in the business says, right, we need a training session on this and it needs to cover this, this and this. And the person in the training or L&D department says, okay, and makes it happen. And they might ask questions about logistics or timings or something like that, but they don't really get to the heart of the matter. So the first stage was recognising at that point, we were experts in delivering training. We weren't experts in understanding the business and understanding what the priorities were of our stakeholders, what they really wanted and needed. So kind of the first stage was to shift our own thinking and start to operate more as business partners. And that meant working with stakeholders. So each of us in the, in the L&D team, we partnered with different areas of the business and our role then became to work with the senior stakeholders and understand the world through their eyes. So to think about, for example, what their key goals were, what their strategy was, what their vision was, how they worked with their team, what they were seeing that was working well, what they were seeing that wasn't working well, and to work with them, also hand in hand with the HR business partners as well, to figure out sort of a holistic way of supporting them. So the HR business partner might lead on things like recruitment strategies um, or uh, retention strategies. But we then might come in and say, well, actually, if we're looking that you want your um, let's use a marketing team as an example who I worked with previously. So if you want your marketeers to move from being more creative to being more analytical, what we need to be doing, as well as perhaps start looking at bringing in people with more analytical experience um, on a graduate programme, we might also want to be upskilling your people in basics of analytics so that they can start embedding it in their role. So that's a real shift, actually, from thinking about running a a training programme on influence, for example, running a training programme on uh, communication skills. What we were really starting to do was to give the business what they needed and wanted to get the right levels of performance and capability for now and also planning it out for the future. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that um, I guess has come across to some of these podcasts is that, you know, the, the, what actually I almost jumped in before to say the mm. same thing as Adam's really, you must have some tricky conversations when you meet your clients, basically. Yeah. And, and, and I guess you meet a client and then you'll probably meet their bosses. And I would imagine that is a a skill in terms of convincing people about culture and culture change and stuff. But um, just wonder, look, one thing that comes up is that kind of sell into the business, maybe for mm. L&D to, to, to change culture and, and invest in different ways of doing things or, or things that take time as well. Yeah, absolutely. None of this is a quick and easy process, Nathan. With that in mind, then, what, what knowledge can you impart then about selling things in like this, the, 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 the longer term ROI, um, you know, or KPIs being met over a longer period of time. What advice would you have to people about that side of thing? First of all, is then thinking about the business. What's the business there to achieve? What does the business want to deliver um, over the years? Uh, the second bit of advice is to really understand from your stakeholders' perspective their pain points and their challenges so that. You can help them to understand that if they do X, Y, Z, this is going to take them a long way forward. Um, Thirdly, it's about building the relationships with them. And those relationships, Nathan, to your point, they don't come overnight. Nobody is going to just fling open the doors to an L&D professional they haven't met before and say, right, okay, I'm going to take all of your advice. I'm going to buy this in or I'm going to implement X, Y and Z, which is going to be a huge cost to us in terms of 
perhaps people leaving their their day-to-day work. So it's kind of sometimes it's a matter of testing things out, like getting quick wins under your belt so that you're starting to build trust. So I remember as an example, one business that I was working in, and they used to see L&D when I first joined as the the fun people. I mean, I'd like to think I'm a fun person anyway, right? Um, but they would see L&D as the people who would come in and do a fun activity on a team away day, for example. And I realized actually I wasn't going to change that mindset overnight by just, and I certainly wasn't going to change it by refusing to do it. So it was a matter of saying, yeah, absolutely, I can do that. Let's have 20-minute catch-up, first of all. Let me find out what fun means to you, what kinds of things that you'd like to achieve from having fun with your team. Then I'd deliver it bloody brilliantly. Then I'd have a conversation with them afterwards to say, here's the things that I noticed, observed, and I saw. I wonder what would happen if we implemented X, Y, and Z. And slowly over time, I'd join their team meetings. I'd understand more about their their problems and challenges. And that's where the trust is grown. And at that point, you're able to start making more recommendations about, well, what would happen if we invested in this? And what would happen if we tested this out? So I think sometimes it is a matter of building trust over time. A nice advice, really, there. And again, I think maybe not necessarily a skill of some some in L&D is this kind of quantifying things this ROI side of things that they, 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 it's not a, a conversation they necessarily enjoy having or, or really mm-hmm. even understand we had um Brendan Noonan on who was uh very senior at Qatar Airlines and he was very much focused on this kind of anal- analyzing evaluating projects know what did it really do for the business because ultimately businesses it's it's going to be about money whether that's a yeah know, retention plan or a heart you know um, recruitment anything it is always ultimately about money so interesting thank you for sharing that um what could businesses benefit from in terms of allowing consultants to come in and and, and really unpick their kind of structures and how, how can they really benefit from that? And why should they do it if they don't do it very well at the moment? I think often it's about having that fresh pair of eyes because when I when I come into businesses now as an external, I have the ability to be able to, to say, well, th- this is how you might benchmark against other similar organisations. Or I might have the ability to say, we've got some really innovative ideas happening in this industry or this sector, and I think that might be useful to borrow in. So we're not constrained in the same way that you are internally. You know, you, it's really, really easy. And I know because I've been internal for years and years and years. It's really easy to get sucked into the politics and the way things are done around here and accept the status quo and not challenge. And when you bring in an external, you've got that, you know, that wealth of experience. You've got that fresh pair of eyes and ears that can perhaps challenge things. And you've all, always automatically got more permission to ask the challenging questions than I think sometimes you have as an internal. And it used to, it used to frustrate me hugely when I worked internally and I'd be thinking, hang on a minute, this, this person over here has asked exactly the same questions that I've asked, but you're paying attention to them. And often it's just that factor of when you bring someone in externally, when you're paying for their, their time and expertise, you see how much you're paying for them, you tend to pay attention, you tend to, to notice a little bit more. It's a good point about them being able to say the same thing and it's taken a different way because of the, of the lack yeah. of structure and politics and hierarchy and all that good stuff. Yeah. 
But having said that, though, I'm still passionate about the fact that when you are an internal, you can still act as a performance consultant and you should. And it's that's what I spent the large proportion of my time at Nationwide doing as well. And also over at uh, BGL and Compare the Market, because I think you can make a massive difference internally. Just It just sometimes means you have to fight a little bit harder to be heard than an external. So just quickly, then, so what generally holds L&D professionals back from taking that, you know, performance consulting approach? Um, I think perceived levels of permission. So if you've always been used to taking orders and if you if the way that your company is operating is right, this is your job. Don't ask questions. Get on and do it. It's really hard to make a difference and make a change. We were really fortunate at Nationwide in that we had very strong leaders who championed L&D, who had credibility with them, you know, with the board and were able to position L&D in a way to say, here's how we can add value to the business. Here's how we can make a fundamental difference. And I can still remember the process, actually. It felt really quite groundbreaking at the time. So I remember um, it's Jill Hill who was heading up our learning and development function at the time. And she created this wonderful storyboard with us. So we worked with a cartoonist to um, to start mapping out and demonstrating what the world looked like currently, where the world could look like if L&D operated differently. And that was the first time I was exposed to something where I got really excited about what learning and development could do. And I then had a language that I could use to talk to my stakeholders about this is what we have been doing before, which is just offering up loads and loads of training programs to anybody who wanted it. And this is where we're going, which is more about good, robust diagnosis, understanding the problems and challenges and helping you to get fit for the future. So I think it is a challenge without strong sponsorship. It doesn't mean that you can't still ask some of those more challenging questions because you can do it in a way that feels okay. So long as you're letting the stakeholders know, I hear you, I understand you and I'm on your side, but I wonder if, I wonder if we did something a little bit differently, would you be open to exploring that? So using kind of facilitative language, more coach-like language, I think would be really helpful. Yeah. And I think I remember from the interview as well, like the what struck me was the importance of internally branding some of these projects. So you had pride partners, didn't you, in, yeah. in one of your initiatives? And even the language of that, you know, it's very collaborative. Mm. Um, and 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 so when you're creating programs like that, you know, is that very important in terms of you know the language used? I think so because if you think about it, when you're on the receiving end of um, anything from L and D, L and D isn't your world, right? So. If you're, um, imagine you're Joe Bloggs and you're a manager and then occasionally you'll get just a bland email out from the L&D department that says, dear Joe, it's now time to do your compliance module, blah, 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 blah. It feels dull. You're not inspired to leap onto the LMS and do a compliance module. Same as if you're saying, dear Joe, we, we realise you have just been promoted to manager. Now is the time to come on your introduction to management essentials programme where we will be sitting and boring you to tears for the next three days. Uh, it's just, it, why, why not inspire people to come along to things? Why not make it something they want to come along to? Why not help them understand this is the benefit to you. This is what could be different. This is what you could achieve. And yeah. And so when you were talking about the pride, pride work, so this was at Nationwide. 
Um, we focused on looking at the, the values and the behaviours across the whole of the organisation. And I was hugely fortunate because of my background working uh, at Eurocamp, looking at volumes and large scale events when we were training um, up to 1,800 people over a five month period. Um, I was asked to join the project team to roll out pride values and behaviours to it was about 350 pride partners across the business. So pride was an acronym, which I believe, I mean, this is oh years and years ago, but it was it stood for something like putting members first, rising to the challenge, inspiring trust, delivering best value and exceeding expectations at the time. Great memory. Sounds right. Well, it sounds good, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, whether it's correct or not. But the whole idea was that before we started to roll out these new values to the whole organisation, we wanted to get people who are advocates, who could really understand what we were trying to do, really get under the skin of what pride really meant to the business and help people across the business to, um, I suppose, align with them and understand how to use them and how to operate them. So we had these huge, large-scale events where just, I mean, it still makes my my um, goosebumps rise up on my arm, actually, thinking about it, because we had, oh, we had everything. We had lighting, big venues, sound. Um, I can still remember the songs that were played to boost up people's energy, but the whole sense was excitement. Let's get really excited about how we can roll out these values to the business. And I love the fact, I did check, actually, on Nationwide's website last night, Pride Values are still the values that, they adhere to throughout the whole of the business. The the way that people make decisions across the business, the way that people lead across the business, the way that they engage with suppliers. Um, so yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant launch to be part of. Actually, I'm going to pick your brain quickly here because we've got a brief. And after this podcast record, I've literally got to write a response to a brief that is exactly what you're talking about. It's creating some compliance training and financial services but also some content that's going to help people actually go to it and engage with it, i.e. trailers, promos, whatever. Give us some tips about getting people engaged with some compliance training. Okay, well, here's the thing. I don't offer out compliance training myself, but I do have some ideas for you. So something that is different or unusual, unexpected for people. So something that it uh, there's actually a company that I've seen that have done this absolutely brilliantly. And they they actually got an, uh, a Barry White tribute act. And the whole ethos behind their compliance training was, well, what would Barry do? Uh, so they got a, the Barry White tribute to be able to sing um, a song about compliance. I mean, that is different. It's unique. It's engaging. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I mean, irreverence i've always thought i mean if you i don't know if you've looked at our stuff we're very much of that kind of ilk and we're quite irreverent we like that shock value i like yeah. that that's almost like the cadbury's chocolate ads you know where they had the the gorilla playing the uh drums and, and exactly you know, that yeah. i like that sort of stuff it kind of interrupts you day to day you know you're not expecting it when you're not expecting it when it's out of the ordinary it's different it's exciting it piques your interest and you think what's this all about and it's your yeah. curiosity that then takes you to it. And actually, I do remember seeing um, a case study that this company had put together and their compliance um, completion rate went up to about 85%. It, it made a massive difference to the company. 
I'll have to link to this in the show notes. I've just looked at Actian it Communications. Is. Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. And on that, then, have you got an email address or a phone number for the for the band? Because I think I've just I've just finished my proposal already. I'm just going to <laughs> send this podcast with a with an email address. Well, yeah, that's nice. I mean, that is that is music to my ears. Again, it's something that we push. But I mean, that that's actually a clever, clever idea. I thought it was absolutely genius. I really did. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about the latest programs that you've been developing with Make Real Progress. Oh, there's a real mix. Here's the thing, right? Most people will tell you when you set up your own business that you have to niche and you have to offer one thing in particular and be known for it. I I disagree. I like to push back on that. I, I kind of, I'm so interested in everything L&D related that is to do with people and management. So typically things that I am running and have run recently have ranged from um, an influence program. So running an influence program across a, a hospitality company and a number of others as their kind of core in-house program. Really practical. Um, I role model the different styles of influence as we go through to bring it to life. Loads of different activities, um, loads of case studies, loads of conversation. Um, management and leadership development comes up time and time again, as I mentioned to you, but I like to do it differently. So we do things off-site, we do things experientially. I bring actors in to work with people, um, make sure that things are bite size. So it's not all about the program. It is not day-long sessions of theoretical download. There's theory in there. There's neuroscience underpinning it. But I give people nudges and drip feeds. What our focus is on is when we're in the room together, it's doing things that we can't do apart. So it's challenging each other. It's building things. It's it's drawing on each other's experiences. Um, so I'm also a qualified coach as well as a background in L&D. So I run sessions on coaching in practical ways. So it frustrated me the fact that there's coaching qualifications out there if you want to do a deeper dive. But what about the managers that want to move beyond listening and questioning and grow, which is the typical um, fodder that you'll get on a coaching program? So I also run things like uh, coaching for careers, coaching underperformers, coaching for high performance, uh, coaching um, for uh, imposterism and confidence. So where managers might come across specific things that they want a, a coaching skill set for, I help them to overcome that. So that's just a flavour because, you know, I could go on for the whole of the rest of the show. But Yeah, that's I, a fantastic range. I love the challenge. I love... And I love the fact that although I, I have a start point of lots of different modules that I can bring, I like the fact that I work bespoke for organisations. So things like the coaching suite that I just talked you through, they're, they're pretty typical and standard that would um, work inside most organisations. But although I've delivered hundreds of different management programmes, I take elements of different ones and package them together in a way that is unique and bespoke for that particular organisation. So you will never see on my website, here's what a management development programme looks like, because it will be different for different contexts and different industries and different sectors. With, um, with people in L&D, do, do you think some of the reticence about bringing in outside consultants like yourself... Um, might be where do I start? That kind of daunting feeling of you know what's what's my workload going to look like because I've never done this before. And what would you say to that then? Where, where, where do you? It sounds like you go in and have a chat and, and find out 
obviously ask a lot of questions. But tell us the starting point for someone that's erring on, do I need this? Um, and how, how does it work? When I talked about all of the different elements, sometimes people like to just see that in a brochure format. You know, what have you delivered in the past? I get that you can do lots of stuff, but what have you delivered in the past? Almost like it's a menu that people could then start from and then say, actually, we need a bit of that and a bit of that and a bit of that. And so then often the start point is a conversation where they'll say to me, can I have a conversation about challenging uh, challenging conversations, career development and coaching, for example, because we like the sound of what you've delivered before. So then the conversation is, you know, it's my curiosity. So what's drawn you to that? What are you seeing at the moment? What are you experiencing? What are you hoping to achieve? Because sometimes a workshop that I've run previously might be exactly the right thing for them. Other times it might not be. Other times it might be supporting them to think a little bit differently, to think about, uh, even something like sending out email nudges to their managers at a certain point to prompt um, a, a, a challenging conversation or feedback or something like that. So the start point is often, what have you done before? Can I have a look at it and can I see if it fits? Then a conversation about well, what is it that you really want and need and what are you trying to achieve? And then we kind of get to a place of, well, this is what it could look like. Here's a headline outline of what work for you could look like. And it's up to you. I, I give people options as well to say, if you've got very minimal budget, this is what I could do for you. But it also how I could support you to build it internally as well. Or if you've got much more time and um, or much more money, for example, I could look at this for you. You know, we could bring in actors, we could do all kinds of different things. So when I ask the questions about what budget people have got, it's not because I'm trying to fleece them for more money because I'm so super transparent about pricing and everything else. It's more about, well, I, I could do anything between here and here, but we need to have a start point really to think about how I can help you most effectively. I think you just mentioned there, budget's going to have a big um, impact on this. But however, generally speaking, what are you seeing in terms of the split of face-to-face versus uh, online since the pandemic in terms of what you do and programs Yeah, that's been really quite interesting, actually, because obviously during lockdown, everything was was virtual. And actually, I think, Alex, you asked me a question at the beginning of the podcast. I don't think I ever answered it about setting up the business. One of the reasons I set up the business when I did, which was in the middle of the pandemic, was because I saw and I was really frustrated by all of these amazing training companies that were out there that refused to adapt to virtual learning. And they're they're all saying, well, we'll wait till it comes back to -to face-to-face because face-to-face is better. And then also what I saw was people trying to deliver face-to-face content virtually, and it just didn't work. You need a different a different pace, a different mix of activities, a, just a different way of operating. And you need to be able to hold people's attention. So basically, when I set up the business, it was all about virtual and, and doing it really well. And so a lot of my work was, well, all of my work at the time was virtual. Then what I saw when people were starting to come out of lockdown was, we haven't been face-to-face for ages. Can we come together? And actually, the balance now is probably, I would say, 80% face-to-face, 20% virtual. So I am still running virtual programs and workshops. Um, You know, it's really helpful for companies where they've got a hybrid working, for example, or if they're geographically dispersed. 
But actually, the majority of what I'm doing is getting people together, getting teams together in the same room, getting groups of leaders, groups of managers together in the same room to help really foster that sense of community and collaboration so that then they can work more effectively. It's almost like a lot of reset work at the moment. I just wanted to come back a little bit to the programmes because I I noticed one for kind of new entrants to L&D. And we have you know, quite a few listeners from the world of funded education, mm-hmm. as well as L&D, um, looking to move over and, you know, perhaps use transferable skills. So I want to kind of quiz you on, you know, what are the kind of critical skills people will, will need to develop if, if they're moving into L&D for the first time? Oh, that's an interesting one. It's going to be no surprise to you to learn, I'm going to say performance consulting over training needs analysis. So there was a lot of emphasis in the past about, a good training needs analysis to be able to design training. And it felt very like a waterfall approach. Kind of you do all your analysis up front, you present your recommendations and and you design and deliver the training. And often I think in the past, the focus has been on train the trainer and design, but with a deep theoretical knowledge and underpinning of adult learning. My approach is it, it's different, I think. So I like to borrow from the the world of agile and think differently about actually when when you're working with people nowadays in an L&D function, you need to be able to think quickly, deliver quickly. You don't necessarily have time to do loads of in-depth analysis. So let's get to know the business. Let's get to know who the participants will be um, on any learning. Let's think more broader than what's their training need and think about all of the things that could be stopping them in their performance. Um, But let's put together something that is interesting, engaging, motivating, that doesn't just mean bums on seats in a classroom for two hours or three hours or whatever. So let's be creative. Let's think about games, activities, um, different ways to, to get people talking and sharing ideas. So I'm not sure if I've even answered your question. I've just gone off on one again, Alex. No, you have. That's a fantastic answer. I think you know, largely what you're saying there, I think there's a, there's a high degree of variation and, and the perhaps expectation in, in moving from a delivery role against a yeah. standardised qualification into an L&D role within a company. Yes, you've summarised it brilliantly. And I think one of the differences is just kind of getting away from the, the rigidity of planning and focus that you might have in an educational setting and be prepared to be a bit more fluid, a bit more dynamic and everything else. For example, any of the the programs that Make Real Progress offer out, um, and this may be hugely frustrating to the associates that work with me as well. I just say, yes, I will always give you some training notes because, you know, I want to give you some guidance about where to start, but don't stick to it. Don't stick to them at all. They're there to just get you thinking about what you could possibly come up with, that there is a guide to, you know, to help you out with your, your, just your thinking up front. The best, I think the most frustrating, um, a couple of my friends who I used to work with at Nationwide, uh, they hadn't done a lot of pre-planning when they picked up some of my training notes. And it was for a course called Further Facilitation. And this course was all about how to facilitate. If facilitation is part of your day-to-day activity, and they they turned over on day two and they got to 11 o'clock and my notes just said, go with the needs of the group. And <laughs> I remember them just saying to me afterwards, I can't believe you did that. We we're expecting like a full set of, you know, introduce this activity, introduce that activity. 
But I guess that, I mean, I wrote that about 15 years ago, but it's fundamental to what I believe. It's you can set the best learning objectives in the world. You can have the clarity on what it's there to achieve. And you also need to work in the moment with people because people can be really quite unpredictable. And what I love is that you never quite know what's going to come up in conversation. So you could be working with a group. Um, you could be talking about, I don't know, challenging conversations. And they throw a curveball in about, well, how would you deal with this then? And we're like, great, let's break out into groups. Let's talk about what you would do, how you might tackle it. And then we'll come back together. And then that might give me a little bit of thinking time as a facilitator to, you know, Google something quickly. Or, you know, nine times out of 10, I'll have a an activity or a model or something that will help to shape that and bring it to life. But you miss that if you stick rigidly to your training notes and you only ever deliver against specific learning objectives that have been set out. You're on, you're on the, well, you've got a finger on the pulse, if you like. You're taking the temperature mm. at least um, with your Facebook community. What are you seeing then as, as, as the trends? What, what are people talking about most? What are people wanting to know about technology-wise, for instance? And it was funny, actually, when you were mentioning about, you know, hiring people in the future or what, what you'd be looking for, I, my first thought is someone that knows AI. Well, yeah. I mean, we're seeing a whole raft of new roles, aren't we? You know, prompt engineers, for example. Yeah, you're going to have someone who's, you know, a specialist in AI or whatever mm. it will be called then. I don't think AI will probably be dropped eventually. It will become redundant, a bit like high definition, you know, I mean, standard definition now. Um, so, yeah, where do you think the trends are going uh, in L&D or certainly where people are most interested uh, in at the moment? Oh, it, it's, it's so hard to say. So I'm not a futurologist by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I think... Even your question when you say, what are people interested in right now? I, I see a little bit of a challenge, actually. And this is, this comes up time and time again in different CIPD reports and everything as well about L&D not necessarily taking their own medicine and not focusing enough on their own skills development. I see a lot of people struggling to keep up with the volume of stuff they have to focus on right now. So they don't necessarily take time out to think think about how tech could be impacting them or even to keep up with things that we might think is just totally BAU. So apart from a few people who are kind of quite pioneering, I don't see many people experimenting with things that might be quite helpful to know about in the past. It surprised me actually how few people have even um, started experimenting with ChatGPT, for example. You know, I just... As soon as I heard about it, I was hands on thinking, right, what could this do for us and how might that help? And I've not had much traction with people wanting to get really engaged in that kind of conversation as yet. And uh, what about the metaverse? Are people interested in the metaverse, VR, AR? Again, not a huge, not a huge take up as yet. So I dabbled in the metaverse. I'm connected in with a brilliant coach called Toby Sinclair. And he was he and I were talking last year and he said, have you actually been in the metaverse? I went, no. And he said, come on, let's go. So he held a coaching session with me in the metaverse so I could kind of explore, have a look around, see the art of the possible. And I can see it being a brilliant opportunity for teams, especially disparate teams, getting together. So when I run virtual workshops now, I'll use tools like Mural and Miro and Jamboard to help people collaborate more effectively. But I think, imagine that upper gear in the metaverse imagine what that would be like if you're kind of 
you're side by side and you're putting everything up there and you're moving things around and you know or, or just going for walking coaching for example side by side or having a different uh, a different kind of conversation with people so I think there's lots of opportunity for exploration um maybe I'm not asking the right questions but I don't see people being as interested in the future as here's my problem right now and I need to deal with it and I wonder if that's just a symptom of um, overwork and pressure and everything else that people are experiencing right now. And Alex, do you get any? I mean, have you, you obviously you've got a recruitment company. Do you, are you get, getting inquiries now for people that are experts in the metaverse or, or probably too early yet, but AI? Yeah, I think I think a little bit early uh, for that. Uh, I know within the recruitment community itself, there's probably about half of the industry just isn't interested at all. Um but it's, you know, it, it's very actively coming for a lot of jobs. And just you mentioning, you know, like having a second page, like meeting the needs of the group. I can see, you know, a lot of questions coming through about this kind of thing. You know, what if this staff member is using AI or, um, you know, are, are there any implementations where we can use, you know, ChatGPT because these tools are so low cost? It's going to circumvent a lot of company processes um, and there'll be a lot of kind of internal tool building. Mm. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it's just it's a much more per- pervasive uh, kind of technology. I think it's just going to bleed into every industry. Um, but yeah, and there's obviously a whole emerging class of jobs, and there's going to be a disappearing class of jobs as well. Mm-hmm. And, and in answer to kind of what you were saying there, Katie, I mean, we we spent for the we've been in L and D for about eight years. The first few years, actually, up until the pandemic, video was kind of a tough sell with certain prospects or clients and that's now gone video is king and it's like people see the value of it and now it's really you're straight in talking about video and not the virtues of video and then it's how much is it going to cost now you know going to take um do you think that's just going to be a natural thing for lnd to fall into metaverse or is there going to be again that kind of reticent um to change to to, to embracing new tech of which video was perhaps seen that way for little as three or four years ago. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting question. I guess it depends on the need of the business. So, for example, if you're working in um, biotech, engineering, manufacturing, um, there might be more of a need to move more quickly for L&D professionals in those sectors because you can immediately see how applicable and useful it might be to um, immerse people in that real-world practice scenarios um, I think for, you know, if we're talking in general for L&D professionals, there's always going to be a spectrum of people who are curious and interested in what the future's got versus not. So I don't know. I think as more people start to understand what it could do for them, I think more people will get interested. So, for example, even if I even think about my experience on, on ChatGPT when it first came out, it was just asking it bog-standard bog questions. Then when I started to see more about Well, actually, other people are using it to prompt it to design course outlines. And so I started to challenge myself to think a little bit differently because it hadn't occurred to me until that point uh, how I could use it. And so I think the same might be Mm -hmm. for Metaverse, for VR and everything else. The more that we understand how it could be used in the art of the possible, perhaps then the more intrigued and curious we might get as a profession. And who knows where it goes. I know. I know. I think it's really exciting. Bit scary as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think we're anywhere near uh, the roles being 
absolutely replaced wholesale. So, for example, I've dabbled with ChatGPT to create um, case studies for different industries, course outlines and everything else. And what comes back is very, it's, it's kind of very formulaic, as you might expect. It doesn't have a human voice, even if you prompt it to say it in a more human voice as yet. But, you know, I, I think our roles will will always shift and change. You think... When I first start, when I first started working in learning and development, it was all about acetates um, and learning how to write on an acetate without smudging it. So, yeah, OHP. Yeah, exactly, exactly yeah, that. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the art of balancing a pointer on it and everything. For the younger people, I've completely lost you. I know, right? <laughs> and it was all you know when I first started delivering influencing programs, for example. These were kind of four or five day residential programs for people. I think now the challenge is do it do it by nudging, help people to do it on the job, challenge and stretch them in the role, give them checklists, give them ideas, give them video, like you said, you know, help them to understand what it could look like. But, you know, we're not talking three, five day residentials. We're talking three minute videos, like a couple of a couple of lines of, of bullet points on an email, that kind of thing. So we're, we're speeding up. We're doing it quicker. Mm. Mm, not what we're seeing with AI at the moment, like ChatGPT is a, a you know gem, a generalized AI, and there'll be all this you know whole emergence of, of specialized AI for for different industries oh, and question. I mean communities of builders at the moment who are you know building all these use cases and they, and they become more and more valuable when they when they're contextualized to an industry or a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Cannot wait to see what happens with those. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk a lot with my team about it, and you know, I tell them I'm not going to need you next year. So you might have to find a job. <laughs> no, but I, we 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 obviously still hold on to that thing about you know the human side and the and the uh, the creativity side that can't be replaced, the experience and how to attack jobs and stuff. But it do, it is already possible for people in a multitude of ways to to put text in to to platforms now and it spits out some kind of video and stuff and it's not about where it's at now it's where it's going to be at in a couple of years it'd be interesting to see how that shakes but i don't know about you you two think but i just think the early kind of wins for us and, and ai will purely be about streamlining processes how you take footage in how it's then meta tagged and, and organized in a project and resynced to the audio and all those boring things that take time at the moment i'm hoping that gets streamlined but actually the end product i hope will still be humans putting stuff down. But, you know, this has been going on for years in our game. I mean, I think places like BT Sport and some of the bigger sports houses, they'll have feeds coming in from from football leagues all over the world, and they're already able to make a highlights package from a game for two minutes that only then need, this is going on for five years, needs an editor to go in and tidy it up. Mm. It knows that it wants to show the goals. After a goal, it cuts to the manager on the bench, the crowd shot, the celebration on the pitch. And that formula sort of works. So, it, you know, we're already seeing erode things in our game. I just, uh, it'd be interesting to see how it shapes up in future in, in L&D and what we all do, you know. Alex, how's it going to affect recruitment? Um, it's going to automate lots of uh, manual processes, you know, sourcing. And, and I guess I'm looking at it thinking, you know, looking at the job boards who might have, you know, I think CV Library's got 14 million CVs. What happens when they overlay an AI that can read all of that unstructured data, semi-structured data, and then you get like predictive analytics around kind of matching. So that matching process already kind of goes on. 
But again, within L and D, it's like you'll be able to look at a profile of CV and say, right, well, these are the these are the training needs based on their career history. Yeah, that'd be interesting. And you know, knowing other people at that company, what they've progressed into after that length of service. I mean, crunching that kind of data is is going to be fantastic. And in terms of you know personalizing L and D, it'll be you know next generation stuff. Really, I'll tell you what, I, I did a job about this is going back a lot of years, seven eight years ago. It was like a promo, and it was for, I'm not going to mention the company's name, you would know it, it's the big credit check people. And it was for them, but another department where they were basically, even then, remember, this long ago, able to build out an algorithm or a score index thing that would score you as a person, and that score would follow you for life. It's like a Black Mirror episode, you know, and suddenly... Well, that score would, would follow, you know, in terms of any job you go for or whatever, that it matters, that metric matters. I haven't really seen much of that since. But, again, that's where, to me, it starts to get a, a little bit scary. Um, you know, we've all had jobs for six, seven months, realised we made a massive mistake and then moved on. Right? I mean, that's part of the course. That might follow you for life now. And it is a little bit scary how data can be used. And I think that's where we're at, aren't we, with, with AI is, there are good uses and perhaps some, you know, lots of good uses of it. Mm. Well, on a lighter note, mm. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what, what, uh, what, what do you think is next for your, you know, the future of your community and where do you want to take it? Oh, that's a really good question. I tend to, you know, for all of me talking about working with businesses and, and future focusing and planning for them, I don't have a future plan for the progress place. It was more about in the moment offering support for for the community. I would love, I would love for as many people as possible to feel welcome, supported, and to leverage that. I don't have any ambitious ambitious growth plans for it either because I think communities that get too huge they sometimes lose lose it and people don't feel as safe and comfortable speaking up so long as it's offering what people want and what people need to help them with their own development that's fine by me and how do people join the group and, and I guess, get a hold of you then? Well, I'm very happy to give you a link to put in show notes if that works for you. Um, but it's on Facebook. You can search in Facebook groups for The Progress Place. Well, I said before the interview that Katie had helped us, and I can honestly say, actually, after that interview, uh, Alex, we did go back and uh, respond uh, that way and, and with a brave one, really. But sadly, the client didn't go for the idea presented, uh, but that wasn't really because of the mechanic. Um, Alex, what struck a chord with you? I think for me, Katie highlights the importance of being a, a proactive networker, um, not just from you know an entrepreneurial perspective where she is at the moment, but also as what I call like an L&D intrapreneur. Uh, she's clearly talented at, at forming communities uh, and I think she's someone we can all learn from in terms of how to bring people together. She talked about how to promote compliance training. We've all had those emails, those dreaded emails, and, and we're big believers in creating promos and trailers around our L&D content. And it was great to hear of a, an internal campaign that was really brave and went down that route and, and reap the rewards for it, I guess. I mean... We're TV people. My line is always that we, we treat learners like viewers and serve up content of the quality they'd expect on telly, uh, but also content that really engages and, and where possible, even entertains. Yeah, I love that. And uh, so, I mean, it's a busy time for us both over the next month or so, but with the response we've had, we'll, we'll endeavour to continue to get these shows out uh, fortnightly and, and keep your DMs and emails coming. Uh, it's always lovely to get that feedback. It really kind of eggs us on. 
uh, and it's a boost to see that uh, a lot of you are enjoying these podcasts.